0: welcome welcome everyone this is the movies move us podcast i'm ruggiero your host and today we'll be talking with the one and only sean farnell sean farnell was the first director of programming at hot Docs. he founded the documentary program at the toronto international film festival and he's done research and strategic consultant for the national film board telefilm film freeway the documentary organization of canada and many more he's also a mentor facilitator panelist juror and he provides creative marketing and distribution services to filmmakers, companies, and institutions. This is going to be a really, really interesting conversation about the role of film festivals. Welcome, and enjoy my conversation with Sean Fernet. Hello, Sean. How are you feeling today?
1: Oh, I'm pretty good, Rochera. Uh, How are you doing today?
0: Life is great. I'm really excited about this. Thank you for joining the podcast. And I can't wait to just get into it, man, because you're really a leader in the film community in North America. And it's a real privilege to have you here.
1: Thanks. We met a few years ago, I think, out in Vancouver. Maybe we met here in Toronto once. It's been nice to meet you and reconnect with you here. And yeah, I've been at this like 20 years. So at some point, you become a leader by just sticking around long enough and and accumulating some knowledge so hopefully i can share that here with your audience on uh, movies move us
0: that's awesome sean and yes i do have great memories of crossing paths with you and um, again lots of lots of appreciation and respect before we get into actual advice tips and insight on film festivals i would love to ask you how did you get into filmmaking in the first place all right good
1: question while well, i was uh you know uh, raised in a town in northern ontario in sudbury and um somehow uh I, I i got to start writing for our local newspaper geez i was a kid like 19 years old and um i started you know doing music reviews of bands that would come through town uh, and then one year we had uh starting in Sudbury a film festival i was starting up that's still running it's called cinefest and uh the editor at the paper asked me if i could cover the, the festival so uh Sure enough, I went down there and started watching some of these uh, movies that, you know, movies that we'd never get, never get in Sudbury otherwise, you know. We'd only get like the top six grossing films. And all of a sudden we had all these independent Canadian films, these international art house films. That festival, Cinefest, is like a a week after the Toronto Film Festival. And we had a deal with uh, Tiff there who kind of like, Helps Cinefest start up. It was kind of a more or less an outreach project of TIFFS at the in the early days. TIFF would send those prints right up from Toronto to Sudbury. So often we get these like big films, and it was the second time in the world they were they were playing. Uh, I remember seeing, for instance, Sex Lies and videotapes there um, out of Toronto. I, you know that first year, I remember seeing a Lars von Trier's film Centropa uh, or Europa, I guess it's called. Um, you know, so uh, Adamie Goins, Film the Adjuster, um, a, a lot of great, you know, great independent documentaries like uh, Project Grizzly, for instance. I remember seeing there, The Falls by the McMahon Brothers. And I was just blown away. I was kind of goofing around at the time, semi, in the, semi going to the local university. Uh, mostly I was going to the pub. I was doing some like English lit courses uh etc but then i sort of just zeroed in on film really locked in hard and and decided that i was going to go to film school so um in around i think 1992 i went to uh i got into concordia in montreal a really terrific uh film program there in a fine arts context um i wasn't really bent on sort of becoming a filmmaker I you know i'm more or less thought well there's sort of maybe a Lots of different jobs I can do here. You know, I could write about film. I could make films. Um, and um, so I went to Concordia. And, uh, you know, I was in the film production uh, program the first year, but I was really a lot more interested in film studies, just learning the history of cinema, uh, both the form. And um, so I started to lock in more on the, um, you know, studying film aspect of it all. I didn't like really being on on student film productions. I thought it was kind of boring. I'm not that technically inclined with a camera, um, et cetera. So, you know, uh, right after film school, then uh, my first job, uh, you know, a week out of film school was back at Cinefest, my my local film festival there in Sudbury, where I was like the film coordinator, the one that was in charge of sort of putting everything together at a very young age. And um, and uh, basically a year later, Tiff offered me a a job running the submissions and print traffic department. So here I am all of a sudden at the Toronto International Film Festival. I had never been to a film festival outside of my local film festival at Cinefest. And and all of a sudden I'm in Toronto with some of the leading programmers in the world. And, um, you know, I was just soaking it in. Right. I was running the submissions department. I was I was. Um, get, getting access to all these films coming through the door. I could take home, uh, believe it or not, these VHS cassettes that were coming in and watch submissions. So I started pre-screening then. They asked me if I could help out and start pre-screening because submissions were just really uh, getting out of control at that time. And uh, the next year, after a, for one year of pre-screening, I proposed the idea that I would uh, become the documentary programmer at the festival because nobody was really doing it. And I was seeing all, you know, the films I was liking the most were all these documentaries you know, when when you're pre-screening, you know, you're watching 10, 12 films a day. And I thought, well, if I'm going to be a programmer, um, it's a lot more appealing to me to be watching the documentaries because even when the films maybe aren't so good, at least I'm learning something about the world, about artists I like, whatever, you know, for the fiction films, you can only watch sort of, So many bad romantic comedies or coming of age movies, right? Uh, And you get pretty bored. So, I I really that's when I really locked in on the documentaries and uh, started, uh, became the first documentary programmer uh, specialty that Tiff had. And that kind of got me started on my path there.
0: Awesome. That sounds like a hell of a journey. And I want to kind of just jump straight into it because it seems like you really got access to the machine of the film festival um, world since uh, the younger age. And so I'm also thinking about potential future festival programmers that are currently stepping into the film industry are getting to understand the role of the film festival. And the elephant in the room is that uh, the role of film festivals right now is shifting. So I wanna ask you, what is the destiny of film festivals for independent filmmakers?
1: Oh uh, yeah, that's a that's a great question. We are jumping right into it here. Uh, well, um, you know, if I could just sort of back up a bit and, and trace sort of the development of of film festivals. You know, I've been in this for uh, almost twenty five years now, um, and, and uh, even in, in my time, I've watched uh, festival the festival landscape just expand uh, exponentially. Right now, when I started out. There were you know a hundred or so film festivals you sort of knew about you know um, most of them were in Europe the American uh, doc- the American film festival scene was really underdeveloped there was about five film festivals in Canada um, um, really at that time not not maybe well maybe not five but no no more than ten and um, and now of course we're in a, an environment where you know if you look at Film Freeway you know you're talking about Thousands. I don't think anyone really knows anymore how many sort of so-called film festivals are out there, right? Uh, somewhere between five and 8,000 annual events, and now with all these virtual events, it just seems mind-boggling. So if you look at the development of film festivals, you know, they started out essentially to promote uh, national cinemas. I mean, the first film festival in the world there, uh, you may be interested to know, was in Venice, right? And it was, uh, believe it or not, started by the Mussolini brothers as a kind of nationalist project to promote Italian cinema.
0: Wow, Wow, I had no idea about that. Yeah, yeah.
1: And then Cannes and shortly thereafter Berlin were started basically by kind of Western conglomerates as a, a a counter to the Mussolini's efforts at this essentially kind of Italian uh, kind of prop- propaganda for, you know, what, what they were up to in Italy at the time. The first award winner at Venice was a uh, Lenny Riefenstahl film, um, you know, and, and so Cannes, and then uh, shortly thereafter, Berlin were started, has kind of Western national, you know, nationalist propaganda efforts to promote national cinemas. The festivals were sort of curated by, um, you know, by, basically foreign export offices you know that were charged that were in charge of promoting national cinemas abroad and they were built around a kind of market economy for exchanging these goods on an international level but also sort of having an ideological uh, kind of war with um, you know with uh, kind of the post-war post-war world a lot of wow. these Europe,
0: crazy yeah. so- Yeah, it's crazy because it sounds like the incipit of the film festivals was to actually curate content so that they could somehow control um, what content would make it out there and and what couldn't. And I wonder if that's still relatable to the modern day when it comes to the selection of that content and how does meritocracy play a role in all of that?
1: Yeah, well, uh, yeah, that's right. Now it's more on purely sort of capitalist terms and, and less but it's still the big players trying to control the the pipeline, so to speak, right? And taking up a lot of space. Um, so you get this na- development of these sort of national cinema festivals, Kalabivari in Eastern Europe is uh, in the form behind the Eastern Bloc uh, was one of those. And, and, and so that moves on in the sixties, what you had was a change where, for instance, at Cannes and that Berlin, they had kind of uh, uh, a kind of a rebellion uh, at those festivals. And in and, 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 uh, Berlin, they formed the Forum uh, section. And in Cannes, they formed uh, um, basically in certain regard, in, in, in Critics Week, alternatives to the nationalist imperative of the main programs. They were kind of like, you know, it was the late 60s, all the student movements were going all around. And so all of a sudden, the curation of film festivals started to focus more on just that, you know, the art rather than the nationalism. And and that's the film festival world that I essentially stepped in where it was all about the art really was like, it's, I'm not being idealistic here. Obviously with compromises and um, you know, but it was really about promoting the art of cinema of world cinema of cultural exchange, et cetera. You know, even at the time I came in and, in the kind of late uh, to mid-90s. What has changed, of course, is now festivals becoming, you know, soon festivals became the big festivals, certainly the kind of marketing platforms for awards campaign. I remember, for instance, in the early days of TIFF, the kind of management there got pretty excited when the award winner was uh, subsequently nominated for and won the Best uh, Picture. Uh, award. I think that was American Beauty. And all of a sudden, the studios were saying, hey, we can bring our stars and our big films to these festivals and start our Oscar campaign. And that was sort of the beginning of of the world we live in now, where the the big festivals uh, are are, are largely uh, for the big films marketing events um, to start largely award campaigns, especially the fall festivals. So you know, the configuration of Telluride, TIFF, Venice, the New York Film Festival, they're all seen as Academy Award launch pads by the big uh, studios and now, of course, streamers. Um, so what that's done, of course, is create this tension between, you know, these, these higher budget films with lots of marketing money behind them, the stars dominating the sort of attention spans of these festivals, with the media, et cetera, and and all these smaller independent films that are still selected by these festivals kind of fighting for the scraps, right? And and, and the whole point of festivals to bring attention to the best in art cinema um, is kind of lost when, you know, they become awards uh, platforms, which is why I continually ask the question in this new kind of... uh, this new uh, universe we live in with regards to film festivals, who and what are they for? And, and the answer to that question, you know, depends on what you have. Right. Um, mm. and, 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 what, and so, you know, there's so many different stakeholders. Now, a lot of the festivals like Toronto, <clears throat> like hot dogs, my festival I also work for like Sundance, like Berlin, they've come, They've become not just annual film festival events, but year-round cultural institutions with year-round programming venues. Um, These organizations are expensive to run, so they're largely big fundraising machines with with all the agendas and compromises that come with being a large not-for-profit fundraising machine. So this is what I and, and many others are trying to figure out. You know, for us that are working in this independent space, you know, uh, uh, how do we use film festivals, basically? And, and how, can we, how can we still benefit from them?
0: That's a great question. And this is, I think, the, the, the center of this whole conversation, because I'm thinking about independent filmmakers out there, just like myself, looking for ways to really find an audience through the film festival maze. And I call it maze," because it can be very confusing. you know so many tiers within the film festival environment, how to approach it, uh, you know, And, and, and the thing that really, that really challenged my view on film festivals as I got more and more involved is that I get to pay to submit my film, but then if the film is accepted, they sell tickets, and they keep the, the, re- the revenue that comes from those tickets. So it's almost like I have to pay for someone to take advantage of my film. And that was something that truly shocked me at the beginning. I was like, what is going on here? What what are your thoughts on something like this?
1: My thoughts are that uh, uh, independent filmmakers have become largely uh, the most significant patrons of many of these festivals, especially the smaller festivals, because submission revenues and ticket revenues make up a fairly significant uh, portion of those budgets, and yet the festivals are not sharing in, in the revenue and not even sharing uh, as much as they could in uh, the benefits of being in a festival as a marketing platform. You know, um, unfortunately, a lot of the festivals' main goal when it comes to marketing and publicity and, and, all, and all that is, is marketing the festival itself. Uh, individual film titles become a little bit insignificant in that equation um, when most of the press is around sort of the larger uh, nature of the festivals, interviews with the festival directors or programmers, et cetera, with, again, a few scraps left over for individual films uh, that pop out. And we look at any the coverage of any given film festivals, both big and small. Um, most of the attention is on the festival itself rather than individual films in that program. And and so you start to question the value of a film festival for releasing a film and getting publicity. If you're giving away, for instance, if you're paying to get in through submission fees, not to mention the expenses of servicing the festival, maybe traveling there, Um, if you're not getting any revenue from the ticket sales, the very least you would hope for some marketing benefits, right? But when you're competing with a hundred other films for a, a little bit of attention out there, then, then, then that's taken away from you too. So what's left except for the fact that these independent producers, filmmakers, the independent rights holders are in fact the largest, the largest benefactors or patrons of the festival.
0: That's really interesting. I'm wondering what can an independent filmmaker do in front of the film festival dilemma that we're discussing right now?
1: really difficult because i understand i mean i work on a daily basis with independent filmmakers usually you know it's a filmmaker slash producer maybe there's another producer involved you know these are the kinds of uh, films i've chosen to work on for the most part and you know a lot of these uh, rights holders these pretty independent producers feel quite powerless um you know knowing how competitive is it is out there they you know they want to be in the festival they want they want the laurel they don't want to rock the boat they want, they don't want to ask for screening fees or a better position in the schedule or a slot in the competition or how can i get some local publicities and yet you know with the filmmakers who are up for those challenges you know i i, I just i just suggest upon upon an invitation to a film festival um ask a few simple questions i mean uh you know do you pay screening fees Will there be an opportunity for me to do uh, either live or virtual Q and A? If it's if you're having a physical event, because that's not always a given uh, these days, uh, will there be some some um, some money for me to travel to the festival? Um, you know, what, can you connect me with local media? Um, you know, you know what's are you geo blocking if it's a virtual screening? You know, so many questions. I, those are just a few. But, uh, you know, uh, and then after the festival, some follow-up. I mean, can you, if you weren't able to attend, can you kind of give me some sense of how my film played? Is there a possibility for you, for me to connect directly with those audiences that saw the film or get some data data from you uh, on the virtual screening? So it's a real battle. I mean, I also understand that a lot of the smaller festivals are are kind of like, you know, uh, also on a shoestring budget. They just want to present a show, et cetera. Um, so it's really, it starts with filmmakers not being afraid in a sense that to ask some questions, right? Um, and and, uh, and to sort of advocate for themselves, you know, if they can. You know, there's a sort of way to do that, which is not aggressive, which is just like, you know, part of the business of, of, of managing your your film, I, I, I see. Festivals has a distribution platform. It's a it's a business arrangement. Uh, what's what is fair trade uh, is the question. What's a fair trade here? You know, like uh, so we always oh, show flexibility. We you know it, it, there's all sorts of reasons we want to be in certain festivals. If I can check enough of those boxes, you know, does it? You know, okay, I understand that you don't pay a screening fee. That's okay. Um, but can we do this or can we do that? You know, just, you know, negotiating a little bit is, I guess is what I'm saying. Um, but, you know, I, a lot of filmmakers I work with, you know, just don't feel that comfortable asking those questions, unfortunately. And, and, uh, and it was a bigger, I mean, these are, these are just, I'm, I'm just sort of putting out questions you can ask of the credible festivals. I mean, even backing up before you submit to festivals, you know the importance of doing your research around the credibility of these festivals, um, and, and, and whether they're meaningful and, and 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 you know, is really important because, on you know, on a, on a site like Film Freeway, for instance, it's like shopping on Amazon and, and it's kind of buyer beware, you know, um, <laughs> lo- if we look at any given day on the deadlines there's 30 festivals that are every day having a deadline and and a lot of them are really bogus and not just bogus. Some of them are really just outright scam festivals where they're just really harvesting submission revenues uh, from filmmakers who don't know better and they're not real events. Um, There's so many things I'm seeing happening now that are really very, very, very problematic uh, in terms of you know, you get into one festival and all of a sudden 20 festivals contact you and offer you like a submission discount to their festival. You know, when I was a programmer and I requested a filmmaker submit to the festival, we waived the fee. You know, we were, it was a solicited submission. Now they're saying, well, we'll give you a 20% discount, like they're marketing their festival to a paying customer for a little bit of a discount. And uh, you never hear from them again, right, if, if you submit. So I, that's stuff I call out when I get those emails. Uh, you know, and I, you know, I have a sort of system of sort of checking out whether a, a festival is credible. You know, it's some simple things you can do. Go to their website. Do they have a physical location? You know, have they been around for at least five years? Um, you know, what's their sponsorship look like? Do they have a credible sponsorship? Because if they do have credible sponsors, you know, including government sponsors, you know that in some way they've been vetted by those companies and by, by those public funders. What kind of programming have they done in the past, et cetera? Um, it's almost like now we need a kind of yelp for film festivals where we can really figure out these events. Because, you know, I work with, uh, you know, probably about 10 to 15 filmmakers at any given time. And, uh, you know, even t- every time I sort of connect with a new filmmaker, I'm really surprised about their lack of knowledge of the festival circuit. The fact that not all festivals are sort of created equally, not all have value. And, and, uh, and yet they're paying in some cases, thousands of dollars in submission fees kind of blindly to these events. Cause they, they're really desperate to get laurels, to get their film out there, um, et cetera. So yeah, it is complicated and, it's crazy, even to me, that I have to sort of, uh, sort of, become a consultant in something called festival strategy now, because um, um, it, you know, because it's so confusing and, and and in some ways predatory, out there.
0: Wow, Sean! Thank you for this overview. The first question that comes to mind after listening to all of this is how can filmmakers integrate film festivals in their distribution plan?
1: Yeah, that's the big question. The first thing to, to, the first thing to sort of think about, and you need usually some uh, feedback outside of the filmmaking team here is, is this a festival film? Do we need festivals? Um, or are we going to waste six months applying to film festivals and have to s- sort of start over again? Are festivals the best way to allocate resources to a marketing distribution plan? That's the first question. And that's a hard that's a hard thing to know because you're so inside the film. Um, you know, you might not have perspective. You might not understand where it fits in a larger context. You might not have a big understanding of, you know, where festivals are at. And, 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 and the reality is, you know, almost any, every film can find a festival somewhere. Um, so the first thing is, is this a festival film? Are festivals the best way to allocate resources to our marketing and distribution plan? What are our goals here? Can we do that without festivals? You know, how, how much should we put into festivals? You know, just by a ratio now, should we sort of put 80% of our resources into festivals and 20% elsewhere or flip that? Should we put 20% of our resources into festivals and 80% elsewhere or whatever in between? Um, so that, you know, it really is, um, you know, you know, when I start, it's like, we start on a projects, what is the plan? Where's this film in two years and how do we get there? And then, yeah, maybe festivals are part of that equation. And then if so, it's like, what exactly is the strategy here? Is it a top-down strategy where we're, thinking about the big festivals and we have a chance with you know the big five sundance berlin toronto Cannes, venice should we focus on documentary events should we focus on sort of the genre festivals and identity festivals uh documentary festivals obviously in my world but but human rights environmental uh the queer festival circuit the so you know the identity festival circuit south asian uh you know, Jewish, all all along that line. So like, what's our plan? And and, um, what's our window? What's our, our launch window here? Usually I start with like a three to six month launch window. Within this period, we're going to apply to X number of festivals, depending on our budget. This is the strategy. We're going to think through the premier ramifications. And then we're going to execute parallel to that festival strategy, however, is the backup plan, so to speak. What else can we do to make sure our film lands in the market? Um, I get started as early as possible now on how are we going to exploit educational rights? Do we need a partner? Do we need to set up some infrastructure for ourselves? Increasingly, I think it's really important to exploit that educational window as early as possible because there's meaningful revenues in that window. And if you wait until you're on the consumer streaming platforms, for example, you totally you totally eliminate those revenues because the educators will go to the consumer platforms instead of um, instead of acquiring through their libraries or institutional sales the films at a higher price point so i want to be exploiting the educational one now pretty much at the same time we're starting to sort of go out to festivals we're ready to go on educational Um, Then again, what are are we using the festivals for? Are we using it to develop an impact campaign around an issue that has a kind of, a film around that has a kind of social issue? Are we using it to generate publicity? Are we using it to test the market in terms of uh, distribution, sales? If so, what does that look like? Um, So, and all this should start, you know, well before you're ready to launch at a festival. I mean, the ideal time for me to get involved in a film To have these conversations and start thinking this through is really probably when you're at kind of rough cut about six months before you're locking picture, let's say even, Um, so we can start thinking about this, planting some seeds, uh, looking ahead to the deadlines, thinking through what our best window is. Is it the fall window with, you know, through or is it the Sundance window, Sundance sort of South by Southwest window? You got to think of where we're going to sort of launch. The earlier we get started on the on that, the better.
0: Interesting. Uh, Sean, I would love to ask you, you earlier raised the question of, is this film a festival film? So I would love to ask you, what makes a film a festival film?
1: Is the million dollar question. Well, obviously in the broader, I work with creative and point of view documentaries, right? So, you know, the big question is how creative is it? And what's the point of view here is, is a sort of broad way. You know, I, I can't say I have an answer to that question, except, you know, I sort of know it when I see it. If it's in the ballpark, I might not know what level of festival we'll get into, but I'll know if it'll get into festivals. And when I say get into festivals. I don't mean one random festival here or two. I mean, like, critical mass. I'm talking, you know, like, the only reason to do the festival circuit is if you can get that critical mass, more than 10, let's say. So, will let's get into more than 10 festivals and, and which festivals might they be? Will they be the big ones? Will they be the thematic ones, et cetera? But if we can get into 10 to 15 of those over, over let's say, six months, you know, then it's like, let's proceed with a festival strategy. Um, you know, obviously, you know, in documentary, you know, you're looking at a, a genre that, you know, even if the filmmaking is kind of like, let's say, more orientated towards a factual broadcast format, if the content uh, is strong enough in the, in in the story and the characters, you know, the form doesn't have to be so creative and and groundbreaking. Right. So, you know, that's a factor, you know, if it looks though, like kind of like normal broadcast style, factually formatted documentary, then maybe, you know, maybe festivals aren't the best way to go here. Um, So, you know, it's, I mean, my advantage, because now I'm kind of more on the marketing and distribution and business side of things, like figuring out the back end. what I bring to that is sort of the background of being a curator at film festivals and really understanding how to get inside a film and and really think objectively about how it's working and and how it might appeal to both programmers, but also to these festivals audiences. Because I've sat in hundreds of those screenings and I know basically... I have a good sense of how a film will connect to a live audience. And that's what really you're looking at with festivals, even, you know, it's weird now because it's all these virtual screenings in this hybrid world. But at the end of the day, you know, when, when we're sort of through this pandemic, you know, what is the film's ability to connect with a live audience, either through its form or through its content? Um, and, and that's what I, I look for.
0: Now film festivals are turning to the hybrid format where half of it happens virtually and the other half of it probably happens in a physical space. How does this impact the ability of an independent filmmaker to leverage their way into a film festival?
1: Virtual festivals, in my opinion, have just been a band-aid, temporary solution, you know, to sort of keeping, keeping the wheels going. In my experience of the virtual festival so far, you know, it, it doesn't even touch. The, the value of a live screening in front of a, an audience uh, for a few reasons. One, nothing can replicate sitting in the cinema for 90 minutes, two hours and giving your full attention to a work quietly on the big screen. And, and nothing, can, nothing can replicate that. Um, two, if you're there as a filmmaker at that screening, you know immediately how your film is working with this audience. On all, I've done so many of these virtual screenings now, it's impossible to know we don't even hear often from the festivals about how many people maybe scream the film we have no you know no sense i always i was thinking oh maybe we'll get there'll be some social media chatter or something not crickets you just don't there's nothing it just sort of they these virtual screenings the film is just sort of disappear into the vapor um you know and, and so you know that's not a film festival to me it's more or less uh uh, premium video on demand window, um, essentially, right? And, and so, you know, the, you know, like you can't you can't replicate what a live festival screening will do. You know, and the festivals know that too. They're putting on a brave face and they're they proceeding. And you know, they they can this way still validate you know, having a call for submissions and generating those submissions revenues and they can still have some revenue from the streaming. Though I don't hear anyone sort of saying, hey, this revenue streaming is saving us. I mean, you know, there's been some successes, I'm sure. And, and uh, I understand it's a way for the festivals to keep in touch with our audiences and keep things going. So I don't begrudge the virtual, um, you know, the, the switch to virtual or hybrid events now. And I think that's probably here to stay it's just now going to be a question of what's fair for the filmmakers here. How can we best still allow the filmmakers to connect with that virtual audience? Cause that's missing, you know, you know, festivals for you know, probably a lot of legal reasons now we can't really share, you know, emails or et cetera, but we've got to figure out a way to, to like, um, can, you know, connect these filmmakers with the audience. That's why you go to a film festival for that immediate and visceral connection between a, a film a filmmaker and the audience for that film and, 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 and so we if we're going to continue with this virtual kind of festival uh, um, uh, concept um, the festivals have to be a lot better at um, directly sort of um, engaging uh, engaging the audience and the filmmaker together you know simple things put a, put some links to the social media of the filmmaker on the on the text description, on the, on the virtual page of the film of the film festival's website. I you know, why why do we got to ask to do that? And why do so many festivals tell us no, they can't do that? I mean, I just would click on our Insta or a Facebook or a website. Let us let you know. Let us sort of know what you think about the film. Um, you know, if you want to follow what we're doing, you know, at, at a live screening, of course, the fest the filmmaker could say, hey, you know, follow me here or do that you can't do that in the virtual world so
0: you know I'm thinking about the differences between documentary films and fiction films narrative films within the context of a, of the film festival strategy and it seems like for documentary films there is a way to create a path that's not necessarily linear with the film festival strategy is that the same for fictional films can fiction and narrative films Find a way into the world without depending on film festivals.
1: I think it's much more difficult for fiction than documentary. Of course, documentaries uh, beyond the normal things we look for from movies—you know, uh, you know—the movie-going experience. Um, documentaries have an educational or a social impact mission, or are you know, it's a little bit easier to find. The audience around a given topic for a documentary, et cetera. So there are sort of more paths and more opportunities for kind of content or subject driven documentaries. For fiction films, uh, much, much tougher. Um, they rely more on this sort of like standard distribution model, uh, um, getting a distributor for one or a sales agent. That's hard enough to do. Um, you know, the. Unless the fiction film is, it's again, really subject driven where they can target a kind of niche audience. Um, if it's just a kind of drama or a comedy um, or a, a horror film, whatever it is, um, they have to go through the sort of old pathways. And, and in this environment with distribution, just like festivals, you know, distribution is notoriously uh, predatory. and and, uh, and, and uh, problematic um, you know. outside of the major distributors, which is really hard to get a major distributor on board for like an independent film. Um, it's really kind of ugly there uh, below that in terms of all these sort of like scammy distributors who kind of like sign you up for no MG and you kind of never hear from them again and they package your film in weird ways. You never see. Maybe you get a little 5,000 mg, but you never hear from them or see another uh, dime in terms of royalty reporting, etc. So yeah, th- I mean, this is why I'm saying thank- even as tough as it can be, in marketing and distributing independent documentary, uh, I think fiction's a lot tougher uh, for sure, just because it's still kind of stuck with with the old system. And in a documentary, I mean, have been you know, it's documentary filmmakers who have been the most pioneering in terms of managing and, exploit and exploiting their rights directly as producers. I think it's been much more innovative than the narrative uh, fiction side.
0: Do you ever see a future where traditional narrative fiction films will utilize the means of distribution of a documentary film?
1: Oh, yeah, it's already, I mean, that's already happening for some. I mean, they have to, you know, focus then on the kind of like um, more the subject matter of the film, et cetera. But a lot of uh, you know a lot of narrative filmmakers are also figuring out how to self distribute, and um, you know you can you can still you know self publishing is is getting easier and easier with the aggregators. Although you know you have to have the budget to do that, and and never mind the sort of basic fees for aggregation to get a film onto the to the transactional and subscription video on demand platforms. If you don't have a marketing budget, um, it's pointless. You know, you're just one of thousands and thousands of films on these platforms. If you don't have money to market that, um, you know, it's a dead end. There's no pot of gold there. And look at Amazon's now, as like over the last year purged, purged thousands and thousands of documentaries and narrative films and shorts that producers paid to have put directly on Amazon Direct. They're all gone now. There's, you know, the, the move from iTunes to Apple TV has been a disaster for independent rights publishers. There's no more. You used to be able to kind of game the system on iTunes a little bit. And if you, you know, managed to sort of get your film in the top 10, it would create a kind of momentum. And you'd see little indies that were kind of self-published creaking into the top 10, it was really good for some documentaries to kind of break out against the films with bigger marketing budgets or awards or festivals. But now with Apple with Apple TV, it's impossible. I mean, it's just like they've really closed down that ecosystem, both to their own original prod, uh, productions, but also just to their, you know, stu- very large studio partners. And it, you know the the, the uh, they really eliminated that ability to discover independence, except for the Independence they champion on that one bar they have on the Apple TV uh, platform now, for instance.
0: What do you think is the solution to the current situation where everything is so monopolized?
1: Uh, have someone pay to make you, pay for your film in advance and don't rely on back end revenues <laughs> is really the short answer. <laughs> so so if you're a producer don't go broke making a film because there just are no revenues out there. I mean, there really, there really are. You could, you could make a little, but you got to put a lot into that. Um, And you know, the, in the Canadian model, I'm in Toronto and the Canadian model and in the model in Western Europe, it's all public money that goes into the documentaries. Right. And so you can live as a producer on making documentaries with a, a kind of like national broadcaster with other kinds of, public funds and tax credits etc your margin of profit as an independent producer if you make a film within budget is going to be 10 to 15 percent and that's your business right anything any other sales in the back end is a bonus um, if conversely though if you're if you're making a low budget documentary even under 200 let's say it's low budget um, You're not going to get that money back most of the time. And you got to know that, you know, have a day job is what I'm saying. And these are passion projects. There are no significant back-end revenues um, for independent documentary. Little small pieces of of revenues from educational, some small broadcast acquisitions licenses, um, some direct sales maybe, et cetera. But the cost to implement that marketing distribution plan Make that basically a break-even scenario in terms of the labor it takes to do that, any marketing money, all the money, uh, the cost of delivering to these various platforms, et cetera. It's really a not-for-profit activity, which is why um, in most countries, um, if you know, it's, it is literally a not-for-profit activity, to be really blunt about it.
0: Wow, that sounds uh, a little bit hopeless for for some independent filmmakers out there. But uh, yeah, so no,
1: I'm just I'm saying that make sure your costs for making the film are covered. And I'm saying you're at financial risk if you if you're putting your own money into the film, and just got to know that. Hey, there's nothing wrong with, you know, um, if you if 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 you're making a passion project documentary, and and you know investing a lot of your own time and money into that. Just know what's out there, you know, and, and, and make sure that you're sort of protected just in terms of your basic income security. So you don't, you know, have to read you know, have to sort of like go in debt to make this film, like know why you're doing it at least right. And know what's out there. And, uh, and that's what I try to convey. It's not saying, so yeah, in some sense it's, it's tough, but I think it's important to know to understand the market and, and, uh, and I know festivals that have been through filmmakers, sorry, that have been through this, and yeah, have 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 lost the money, but they're doing it again because they love making films. And maybe they make their income from teaching, or maybe they make their income from editing or, or shooting factual television, or or whatever. Um, you know, film I'm working on now. She, you know, the filmmaker has a stable government job and you know she she made a feature documentary which got into tiff and is doing a lot of festivals now she made it on her spare time and uh you know got some grants here and there and, and, and made her film over five years uh but didn't give up her day job and uh and just you know just sort of in terms of your personal and professional sanity just you've got to understand that there are thousands of feature documentaries thousands and thousands being made globally every year and these are the films that you're competing with and it's a very difficult commodity. The one-off sort of 90-minute feature doc is a very difficult commodity in the marketplace. Um, You know, broadcasters want a television hour Um, it costs to cut your feature down for that and there's very, very, very few slots for acquisitions. As I've already said, there's not really any revenue on the 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 on-demand platforms. It's great to get it out there but you know, it's more or less not a business thing. It's more or less you want to show your work, right? Um, and uh, you know, um, festivals are are paying, um, etc. So yeah, economically, it's it's a kind of no-win situation. This is true, but a lot of artistic and creative endeavors are are the same. You know, if you want to make music, you want to paint, you want to you want to you want to be a creative photographer. Uh, you know, um, you're in the same boat as as any artist, um, in a sense. So uh, just make sure you're not putting too much of your own money in. And if you are, you've got a safety net.
0: So, Sean, apart from government grants, do you see any ways filmmakers can raise funds without having to rely on revenue?
1: Models are already out there. There's a crowdsourcing model. I mean, anyone I talk to has done that says never again, but it's still out there. Um, you know, there is the sort of branded uh, pathway, a uh, parallels pathway of, you know, um, having a corporate benefactor who, ha- who has some vested interest in, in supporting a given topic that's aligned with their social mission as a company. There is, you know, looking for philanthropic funders around a given topic. Um, because, you know, there's a wealthy fil- philanthropist who wants a film made on X topic or whatever. Um, um, you know, so those are sort of the models uh, uh, there. Um, credit card debt is, is also a model, but it's not one I recommend. <laughs> you know, I made a film since film school, so I'm not a filmmaker, uh, just to be very, you know, I, I consider myself more or less a, a curator uh first of all i like working with talented people and even in even as i've moved now more into the sort of business side of this um i still you know i'm highly selective around the people and the projects i I work with um so i like you know films that appeal to me creatively or appeal to me because of the people making them and their commitment this is what i do um you know at some point maybe i'll get involved in producing something that's really close to my heart but that's as i for all the reasons I just explained, it's a daunting prospect. It's five years of your life. Um, You know, you've got to really be in for the right reasons. So I'm not a filmmaker. um, And, uh, but you know, where my heart is, is on the truly creative independent documentary. Um, And, uh, you know, parallel to that, because it's documentary, because I'm a political person on, on films that, you know, change and inform, uh, hearts and minds, and, and uh, you know, and, and so um, those are, you know, that, that's a, that, Those are works I really like to believe in. I'm involved with one film now um, that's had its festival premiere uh, in September. It's called Emergence: Out of the Shadows. It's a story of uh, three uh, South Asian individuals who came out to their families. Uh, two of the individuals, their parents, are involved in the film. And this film is just so moving and so inspiring, these people and their courage. It's now already selected for 20 film festivals. We're just starting. I can see this film playing 100 film festivals uh, by over the next year. It's going to really help people and I think help help educate uh, communities where where tolerance and acceptance uh, uh uh, around uh, sexuality and sexual expression is just is not there. In this case, it's, uh, a Punjabi, it's Punjabi Sikh, the Punjabi Sikh community. Uh, and, and this film is going to a lot of South Asian festivals, a lot of queer festivals. We're hopeful it'll, it'll get into meaningful festivals in India and, and really sort of have, you know, uh, it's a film to have a conversation around. We have a robust educational Strategy around the film to get into classrooms to get in front of educators, and, and it's really a you know a social mission film. Um, you know, conversely, I've worked on really you know, difficult art art documentaries um, that you know need to be seen in a cinema, and we do the work uh, when we could to you know get the film booked into cinemas and, and to get into major festivals and to have that art film. So that's sort of the other side of, of the coin. So, I mean, you know, I see myself as supporting filmmakers uh, uh, in in terms of realizing uh, the goals uh, for for their films. And and that's really a role I'm really happy to, to be in.
0: Sounds fantastic. How could filmmakers reach out to you if they wanted to?
1: Uh, you could email me, um, you know, I've got to say mostly I work, I don't advertise so much and market myself. I've seemed to be able to sort of manage to keep going on word of mouth, uh, or, or working, uh, on multiple projects with a given filmmaker over the years. You know, I've been doing this kind of stuff, which is a kind of a, what I call a consulting producer role for about five years now. And I got a, a kind of nice stable, uh, Kind of like thing where there's always projects coming through and, and and uh so i mean you could email me it's not hard to find how to reach me online just by googling my name my email is my name farnell at gmail again pretty easy to find me um i'm selective i can only really have so much bandwidth um, um and i'm trying to figure out how i can be as helpful as possible but obviously keep my focus uh on the projects that i'm committed to and and so but yeah I, I welcome filmmakers reaching out if i can't help i'm pretty i'm pretty direct about that off the top and, and if i can it's a conversation and every case is different in terms of how i get involved and the kind of relationship and support i'm able to offer to the team
0: right and now that uh, that we've gone on quite a conversation about the role of film festivals I would also love to touch on your experience as a film festival programmer and this is also related to your career as a film festival programmer I would love to ask you what do you think makes a good film festival programmer and to the people that are pursuing a career as a programmer what should they do and what would be the first steps to do that?
1: Right. Well, I mean, I think you've got to, you know, study and have a sound knowledge of the history uh, of film and, and and the form. So, you know, uh, humanities and fine arts education is a, is a really good background for, for that. First of all, that's what I had. And, and uh, I mean, for me, it was also very helpful to start in administrative roles with the festival so I can learn the operations, et cetera, that's part of the sort of toolkit, a programmer. And most programmers that are sort of moving up, usually, you know, they're just sort of in the programming jobs. They, they usually, you know, some kind of coordinator position at the festival and eventually they become uh, programmers. Then you have to have, um, you know, I think a lot of curiosity. You have to have a lot of generosity. Um, You have to be able to sort of imagine how a given film is going to play in front of an audience. Um, You've got to be able to really step outside of your own biases and tastes a lot. And and you're not programming for yourself. You're programming for an audience. You're programming to support a filmmaker connecting with that audience. You know, at any given film festival, you need, of course, a variety of of, uh, kinds of films, topics, forms. So you've got to be uh, kind of omnivorous in your tastes and uh, be able to think outside of your own box and background. Uh, I think those are, are some important things. You have to be a good communicator. You should be able to articulate uh, why you think a given film uh, is worthy of a festival selection. You should also be able to articulate why a given film is not. Um, you have to have a real big appetite we're watching movies with full attention because this is the job, right? I was watching at my peak four to five hundred documentaries a year. So, um, you know, and we're talking about documentaries, really tough subject matter. A lot of times you have to be resilient. Um, and, and, you know, when you're crying in the middle of your day, every work day, that can be a little tough. Uh, and that's, you know, that's not unusual for documentary programmers to sort of really, you know, be emotionally taxed screening uh, all these difficult films. So you need some resilience that way and, and some self-care. Um, and, uh, yeah, those are some of the things that I mean, I, I would hire programmers right when I was at Hot Docs, And so those are some of the things I looked uh, in the in, in terms of what would make a good programmer for the team, for mm-hmm. sure. and
0: how does a potential festival and programmer get his or her foot in the door?
1: That usually, I mean, usually they're starting kind of in some kind of administrative role. I I think for me, the best programmers were also had some background in making films themselves. and understood the process and, and the difficulty of, of of making films. So I, you know, I always look for programmers that had some background in filmmaking or an interest, or maybe where they were sort of like starting out as emerging filmmakers. And, and I also thought it would be useful for them as filmmakers to to be programmers and to screen work as well. So they could, you know, expand their own filmmaking horizons. I think filmmaking is a great background to be a curator. I think uh, writing about films uh, increasingly, I see a lot of kind of bloggers or film critics, Moving into the into into programming positions—that's a, a common a common pathway. Um, so there's a, there's a few options for you to get a foot in the door. Increasingly, people are just starting their own festivals. <laughs> That's a another way to do it: just start
0: a festival. Um, Is yeah. that something that you you somehow suggest, or what do you think would be the best steps to take when starting a film festival, and what are the dangers of starting an another film festival in this sea of countless film festivals around the world.
1: Yeah, I can't imagine why anyone would want to start a, a film festival now. We, we certainly, the world certainly doesn't need any more festivals. Toronto has something like over 80 film festivals. You know, in any given week, there's a film festival. Uh, I already said, you know, like we have so many. I mean, I think you look around your community and think, you know, what's missing here? Uh, you know, can we add something by having a festival in this community? And and, uh, do we have the support to to make it happen? In other words, you know, what are our intentions here? Is it just to sort of get a bunch of submissions and have lots of submissions revenue? And why are we doing this? So what, you know, can we actually get an audience? I think, unfortunately, too many of these festivals start and they really don't have a, an audience. And, and so the first thing you do is got to create an audience. Maybe you don't start a festival. Start a screening series where you build up an audience slowly and then have a weekend event and then expand from there. But, I mean, that's the thing for me is that, you know, like there's no point in having a festival or starting a festival unless you're sure you can you have an audience. So that's, a, that's where you start. How can we build up an audience around uh, – around um you know what we're doing here and what sh- you know what exactly should the festival be is it just another international film festival or or is it really are you really focusing on a genre like horror or is it a social mission genre or or you know is it an identity do we you know do we need you know we don't have an asian film festival in our community which you know uh maybe we should start that so yeah really you know really being sure of your intent and most of all, your ability to to actually have an
0: audience. Very interesting, Sean. And before wrapping up the conversation, I would love to ask you a couple more questions, uh, especially related, again, to the role of film festivals for independent filmmakers. In your opinion, what will be the optimal situation for an independent filmmaker when engaging with a film festival? What can the filmmaker look up to when establishing an arrangement as you might say, with a film festival.
1: Wow, that's a that's a good question. It really depends on the film. Um, you know, we just ha- I just had a film premiere at the Toronto International Film Festival. You know, in that case, this film was finished like a week before the festival, right? And, and so we went in there not with some big distribution or sales goal. We just wanted to get get started. We we kind of I called it a soft launch. We just wanted to start planting some seeds. To, you know, uh, We're also in six other Canadian film festivals uh, through October. And this was just the start, and we're just gathering intelligence. How's this film working with audiences? For instance, we didn't even chase reviews or publicity. We kind of kept the film under wraps. We want to save that for later when we do a theatrical release, which will be at some point in the new year. So we went in, we considered a kind of market test soft launch for the film. Uh, in another scenario, if that same film was, was done and we, we had our marketing plan in place and our marketing and distribution budget in place, we might have went in with a really strong publicity goal, trying to get interviews in the local media, already had theatrical bookings set up closely following the festival so we can leverage the festival publicity and go directly into our theatrical run. So those are two very different ways to approach it as an independent rights holder. Either the soft launch or here we go, we're going public, we're going big, we're going to get our social media platforms humming here, we're going to get reviews, the director is going to get interviewed, et cetera. Um, So those are, you know, certainly with a major festival, those are two different ways of approaching it. Um, Mm -hmm. Like I said, also for me, it's important to understand you know what is what is our sort of run going to look like? Are we going to do three months and out? Are we going to extend this over six months or a year? Are we going to try for a festival a week? Um, how long are we going to go out at, at this? What are the resources and what's the end game? And, and and so it really depends on the film, its potential, the resources we have at the time to execute, etc. So it's all part. It's really hard to isolate like one or two things that festival you can do unless you know the main thing is that just ask the question what what's the big picture here it's just not about going to a festival and getting a laurel Um, sometimes you know if you're a short filmmaker maybe it's you know the film itself is secondary the fact of being at the festival and doing like professional development and networking around future projects that could be another way to approach festivals especially for short filmmakers Um, you know, so, so many different agendas and, and, and ways to approach it, which is why, you know, part of the sort of producer toolkit needs to be really firm understanding around how festivals work, yes, but overall how marketing and distribution works. Mostly producers uh, are sort of experts in kind of packaging and developing projects and financing projects. But I think now a big part of the producer toolkit is understanding how to market and distribute um, a project because um, it's very hard to get distribution. It's not always, you know, sort of, let's call traditional distribution. It's not always the best option, also.
0: Right. Sean, I, I have a question about soft and hard launch. You mentioned soft launches and hard launches. What uh, should filmmakers be aware of when thinking of their launch? And what are the pros and cons of a hard launch in comparison to a soft launch?
1: Okay, well, let me use another metaphor here. Let's say a soft launch is where you're just planting seeds, right? It's early spring. I've never used this metaphor, so it might go (laughs) go off the rails here. But let's say the soft launch is we're just going to use the festivals over three months, and we're going to plant some seeds here. You know, we're going to lay low, we're going to plant some seeds and you know, in six months, they'll grow into a theatrical release, a streaming deal, et cetera, et cetera, an impact campaign. Okay, that's the self-launch. You're just planting seeds. The hard launch, you're harvesting. Okay, so a hard launch is you've spent six months or so before your festival premiere, you have a marketing budget, you have your social media up and running, um, you know when your theatrical release is going to be, you understand all your windows and how they're gonna roll out and you're using the festival to start your marketing and distribution campaign and, and you're harvesting, right? You're going, this is it. So for, for example, studios, uh, I'll use Sony Pictures Classics as an example. Their typical strategy has been a lot is at CAN, they're doing soft launches or acquisitions. Okay, the, you know, they're at CAN. Um, and they're either buying or they're they're just sort of have their film in the competition, et cetera, and they're laying low. They're not doing publicity. they're, they're at cannes, they're just playing the seeds. This is a major distribution company, Sony Pictures Classics. However, with those same films, they come back to Toronto and Venice and boom, the stars are there, The Oscar campaign starts. Um, um, and that's true for their documentary acquisitions too. So they seed in the spring and they harvest in the fall at the festivals. And that's the difference. In that case, by the time they get to Toronto or Venice or Telluride, they have all their awards campaign in place. They have their theatrical dates slated for the fall. They got everything ready to go. And in and, and the fall festivals, and they are launching their awards, theatrical and market campaign. They're at Cannes, but they're laying low. They're planting the seeds. That's sort of example
0: I want to thank you for sharing all of this with us today because there is really a lot so I want to thank you for that Sean and as a final question I would love to ask you what's your piece of advice to independent filmmakers out there today
1: uh persevere it's very difficult um I'm not going to sugarcoat it and protect yourself financially um as well I think that's important and we know people don't talk they'll to talk about money or their income etc But make those projects, make your creative passion projects, just protect yourself financially and be realistic and and get, get help, get other points of view on your work and make sure you know what you're making. Um, You know, understand your intent and realize your intent both creatively and in business terms.
0: Thank you so much, Sean. That was a wonderful conversation. Thank you for having me. It's always fun
1: to talk and to share information. It's really important that independent filmmakers share stories and, and information so we can learn from each other. So thanks for providing this platform uh, to do that. I really appreciate it.
0: Everyone, this was the one and only Sean Farnell. I will put all the handles and ways to reach out to him in the description of the podcast that you can find on moviesmoveus.com as well. And never, never forget people, we eat emotions, we drink energy, we breathe stories, Movies Move Us. The Sharp Nose is out.